folks, and welcome or welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima, again. And this podcast was brought to you, among others, by Emil Gorgis, a Tokyo real estate agent who specializes in serving international or mixed nationality families looking for the perfect family home. So Emil's an Australian. He's been living here in Japan for the past two decades, eight years of which he's been actively buying, selling, and managing real estate properties in the city on behalf of his own family and a great many happy clients. And he also acts as a mortgage broker on behalf of his clients. So his company has a dedicated loan officer in many of the Japanese mega banks. And if you're a regular listener, you probably already know him from our JREP, the Japan Real Estate Experts panel sessions. So you're probably already aware that the man is an absolute fountain of wisdom on all things related to real estate in Japan. And in particular to family homes, the greater Tokyo metropolitan area and mortgages. And most importantly, he's incredibly generous with his time and advice, which he's more than happy to provide at no cost or commitment to anyone asking. So if you've been thinking about buying your home in Tokyo, but you've been sitting on the fence for a while, or if you just want to have a chat in English with a real expert, drop him a line on emil.gorgis, that's E-M-I-L dot G-O-R-G double E S Emil dot Gorgis at Tokyo Realty dot JP. Hit him up today and start exploring your options. All right. So for today's episode, this is a conversation that I've had recently with a new client and we're talking investment strategies, comparing property investment in Japan to other more volatile investments, such as investment real estate in the US, equity markets, cryptocurrencies, etc. What are the advantages and disadvantages, how diversity comes into play and so forth. We also talk corporate versus individual ownership of properties, which is a topic that does keep coming up here on the podcast time and time again. When is it worth to switch from individual ownership of investment properties uh, to putting them under a company name so that you can cap your tax rate and claim more tax deductions? What's involved in making the switch and why you may want to do that at a certain stage? We also talk locations, different types of cities, and what are the advantages and disadvantages in larger metropolitan centers versus smaller townships, such as prefectural capitals, satellite cities, or bedroom communities, and so on. And finally, we have a short conversation about the difference between doing your due diligence on investment condos as opposed to single family homes or holiday homes. So shorter episode than most, but we do cover a lot of topics with surprising depth considering the relatively short time frame. Hope you find some value in it. Enjoy the chat and I'll see you again on the other side. So I'll just scroll to the bottom of your email there. Um, okay, so we're talking about establishing a company as opposed to purchasing as an individual. Um, and you're Which I'm not hard up on doing. It's just from what I saw, it seemed like it might be a good idea. And it is when your portfolio grows to a certain point um, because the corporate tax is capped at about between 20 to 30 percent, uh, something like 24 percent for smaller enterprises. And individual tax does go up beyond that. But individual tax starts a lot lower, whereas corporate tax is always 20 percent and it's also minimum. So with individual, if you're under a certain threshold, you're not going to be paying any tax. And as a corporation, there is a minimum depending on which city you set up in, but anywhere between 700 to 1,000 bucks or so. Hmm. 
plus the two to three thousand dollars worth of accounting and bookkeeping every year. So if your entire portfolio is generating, say, seven or eight thousand dollars a year, it just doesn't make much sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's the only thing. But if and when you do grow, transferring um, properties, you've mentioned that I might have said something that was misleading. Uh, you had discouraged it um, just due to how expensive it was to do. You yeah, kind of so, said it wasn't really a thing. Yeah, so if we look at the budget that you were mentioning there, for example, if we say about 15 million yen, um, legal and registration fees to transfer that over to a different owner, whether it's corporate or individual, doesn't matter. Let's say it's going to be between 2 to 5%, let's call it 4%. It's kind of, kind of steep, but usually we be less than that. So that's about 600,000 yen. Um, but if you had a corporation, let's say for three to five years, just the minimum taxes and accounting and bookkeeping fees would already be more than that. So there is a cost involved in transferring ownership, but I think depending on how quickly you think you're going to grow your portfolio, it might not make sense. But having said that, if you think you'll reach, say, half a million or, you know, seven, eight hundred thousand US worth of assets in about three, five years time, then maybe it does make sense to do it from the get go. Yeah. I know I can get close to that, but I can't guarantee that. So, yeah, it would be like a gamble. Yeah, I mean, look, it's there's more that you can claim under a corporate umbrella as well, as opposed to as an individual. There's just more expenses and and um, tax deductions that you can probably claim that are related to running the business. Um, like you've mentioned, good. property depreciation before. That works Any for both corporate or individual, not, not much it does? difference there. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, I might just put you in touch with an accountant. It might be worth to pay them for like an hour of their time. They're not too expensive. I think 50 or $75 or what. Um, and they can just give you advice on when it's feasible or whether it's a good idea to do it from the get-go or not. Nah, I don't think I'd be growing fast enough for it to make sense. Yeah. Um, if and when, I mean, look, if and when you see that it is going that way, when, you know, we can bite the bullet and transfer ownership and set up a company, transfer ownership then. Um, but if you're not sure, then I'd probably advise against it, at least at this early of a stage. I mean, I contacted you because you're the expert. I'll defer to your advice. Not an accountant, though. <laughs> I'm the <laughs> expert on the property. On the accountant, um, that's a bit, um, uh, that, that's beyond my pay grade. So we... we... You still got more chops on Japanese accounting than I do. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Just just experience. So the, the property that you've mentioned, the, the 15 million or 150,000 US, that's going to be an investment property, I'm assuming, not a holiday home or what? Uh, I might split the difference, um, but I do want to pick up an investment property. Okay. Um, any particular reason for that budget? Do you want a single asset under that budget? Do you want to break it up into two of them maybe? Um, yield requirements, uh, location preferences. Do you have any idea on where you're going with all of those? I do not know the pros and cons on the uh, different options. So, Okay. Um, so that kind of money would get you a single asset in most cities around Japan, even in Tokyo, you could get a single asset for this amount of cash. That'll be a, um, an investment property that will be yielding income. In Tokyo, Osaka, that's probably going to be... They're, they're expensive. They're expensive, but not, not crazy. So 
to get high yield, you're usually looking at slightly older, smaller studio, one bedroom type properties. They tend to generate the highest yield percentage wise. So if you're looking at, for example, something that was built between 20 to 30 years of age and size wise is maybe, let's say 15 to 25 square meters. So a studio or a one bedroom apartment. In Tokyo, Osaka, that would, in a good location in Tokyo, Osaka, that would get you probably one asset. And the yield on that would be somewhere between three, maybe 4% if we're lucky. In other city, that same amount will buy you either a single asset that will yield, say, four to 5%, or maybe two assets that are a bit more suburban and might go as high as five or 6% each. Um, so there's something to be said for diversity, but generally if we buy something a bit younger with slightly lower yield and try to utilize the full budget for a single asset, um, it'll be a better quality asset. So it's not gonna be as old, it's gonna be maybe slightly bigger, it's gonna attract maybe higher profile tenants. So when on purchase, the yield would be a little bit lower, but we're probably going to be safer to assume that that yield will continue to be close to what it was on purchase over time. Whereas if we break that up into two smaller assets, they will be yielding more on purchase, but probably a bit more volatile. So if and when they become vacant, you might have to reduce the rent a bit or offer some incentives to get a new tenant in because there's going to be a lot of competition from similar cheapo assets around you um, so bo both ways are doable I mean we've got clients that don't mind the slightly lower yield and we'd advise to get a single asset for that budget um, and other clients just prefer to aim for as high as possible and then just resell it down the track when if it's not as profitable and then we we are happy to break it up into a couple of assets for them so it's totally up to you too much information there or um well, it's more of a lack of information. I don't know, like, the level of risk that's involved in, like, the really high-yield stuff versus, given what I know right now, which is not so much, I'd just, like, go down the middle. Like, try to get good yield, but not so much of a headache and other stuff. Everything that I've, all of the assets that I've reviewed so far are not going to be high-risk assets. So even if you end up with two, let's say, smaller apartments of about... <laughs> let's call it 60 to $70,000 each, um, they're not going to be bad, okay? So you, no. you are going to be able to find tenants to place in COVID days notwithstanding, but we're slowly getting over that, I think, here. Um, we have had slightly longer, longer vacancies recently, but um, we would be able to get tenants in there. It's just that over time, because they're older and kind of attract lower income tenants, then the yield is maybe not going to be as stable. So vacancy, instead of being a month or two, might be three or four months between tenants. And um, we might have to reduce the rent more frequently than we would with a higher end property. Um, but they're still, they're going to be populated. They're going to be generating income. It's just going to be a bit more fluctuating. That's all. Um, but on purchase, they will be yielding slightly higher than that single asset. So if you're, I get. What are, you, what are your other investment options? Let's put it this way. What kind of yield would you be getting if you were putting that money elsewhere? Um, I had been in uh, stocks and crypto. Okay. Um, but it looks like we're entering a recession, maybe. I don't yeah. know. It's, it's, it's a guess. 
Mm. Um, so it could be negative yields. Um, who's to say? Okay. So, well, if you're talking stocks and crypto, I'm guessing um, four to five percent sounds kind of low to what you could potentially be gaining on those, right? Or is that uh, still- during a good time period? Um, okay. Due to America's economic policies, it's possible that we're heading into a recession. So yeah. the gains on those aren't going to look so great. Okay. And they're also, I'm guessing, even more volatile than what I've been describing so far, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So in that case, if you are okay with slightly lower yields, then it might be a good idea to diversify into something a bit more safe and stable, in which case I'd probably advise to go for a single asset in a good location in a big city. That sounds um, nice. Maybe not Tokyo or Osaka, because that would be closer to the 3-4%. Um, Yokohama, uh, Saitama, Chiba cities, which are all around Tokyo, would probably get up to 6%. And just so we're on the same page, we're talking net before tax. So including all of your purchase and known maintenance and running costs, um, excluding your annual tax situation, which is probably going to be close to negligible if that's your only income in Japan. I mean, Um, thus far. Yeah. And excluding any unknown. So vacancies, something breaks down, sudden maintenance that's not included in the monthly building fees and so forth. Yeah. So net pre-tax, um, Yokohama, Chiba, Saitama, they're all around Tokyo would get up to about 6%. Uh, Fukuoka City, where we are, which is like the biggest city in Western Japan, kind of like the gateway to Southeast Asia, uh, also gets up to about 6%, six and a half maybe, if we're lucky. Um, Kobe, which is near Osaka, can sometimes go up to 6%. And then there are satellite cities and like prefectural capitals that don't have as many growth prospects, uh, capital growth prospects as those other cities that I've just mentioned. Um, but returns there can be higher. So maybe up to 7, 7.5%. We interrupt this broadcast. I always wanted to say this. We interrupt this broadcast to tell you about Tokyo Family Stays. They're a short-term rentals company in Tokyo and they offer a home away from home experience, which is just perfect for remote working, quarantining, or if you just need summer quiet to hide away from the world. So they offer a variety of options for families, for corporate relocations, or simply if you're transitioning between homes in Tokyo. Now the properties are super comfortable, tastefully furnished, fully equipped with all amenities, and they accommodate up to 10 people. So really the only thing you'll need to bring with you is your toothbrush and maybe a change of clothes. They've got fast, unlimited wireless internet, dedicated workspaces, and fully equipped kitchens, and they're just a delight to stay in, a fantastic alternative to Japanese business hotels, which if you've ever stayed in one, you probably know they're tiny, they're noisy, fine for a night or two if you're on your own, but long-term or with a family, you'll probably feel you're in a jail cell very quickly. So if you want to give yourself a sense of space and freedom by renting a real home with comfortable Western beds, including all the necessities like baby bedding, children's toys, high chairs, you definitely want to reach out to Tokyo Family Stays. They've been at it for over a decade. They're a fully licensed minpaku or short-term stay operator. And as a special bonus for our viewers and listeners, they're also throwing in a breakfast basket upon arrival for anyone who books and mentions the Japan Real Estate Podcast or NTI. And not only for guests, if you're a property owner, you've got an investment property that you want to tweak for higher profits, or a holiday home that you want rented out when not in use via short-term stays, drop them a line today 
see how they can help you maximize your property's income. And again, as a special bonus to our viewers and listeners, they're also offering a free audit of your existing short-term stay listings without any obligation whatsoever. So feel free to reach out to them at tokyofamilystays.com. Well worth your visit. And again, if you're in the market for a family home in or around the Tokyo metropolitan area, Emil's your man. Don't be shy to reach out to him as well at emil.gorgies, G-O-R-G-E-E-S at tokyorealty.jp. Hmm. I'll stick with the first group. Okay. <laughs> so maybe suburban Tokyo if we get lucky, but otherwise we'll focus on the bigger cities around Tokyo, um, on Kobe City, which is around Osaka and Fukuoka City. Um, there's also Kyoto, Nagoya and Sapporo, which are three other big cities in Japan. Um, Kyoto, we don't see a lot of high yield deals coming out of there, but if we do, that'll be a good one to pounce on. And Nagoya City can also generate higher yields and lower purchase price, but the population there is just a bit more blue collar. So it's still Japan. I mean, there's no ghettos and yeah. drug labs and anything like that. But if on occasion you do have a tenant who's late on payments or somebody who's just canceling mid-lease, that kind of thing, um, that does tend to happen a bit more often in Nagoya. Uh, still still rare, but does when it does happen, it happens a bit more often there. Sapporo can also generate higher yields and features lower purchase prices, but the winters there can be rough on maintenance and vacancies. So if you happen to get a vacancy during the snow months, it's going to be quite challenging to populate before um, spring yeah. time again. Yeah, stay vacant until the sun comes back out. Kind of thing, yeah. <laughs> and um, also uh, there's a lot more heating equipment and stuff that can break down and be more expensive. So yeah. if we find something in Sapporo that's, quite high on the yield um, to compensate for that, then we might look at that as well. But otherwise, I'll probably stick to the first group, like you've mentioned. All right. Yeah. Um, so that, can I ask what drew you to Japan specifically? Like what, why invest in Japan? Um, well, I've kind of had an interest in Japanese culture and to be honest, Japanese media for yep. quite some time. Um, and it's just... I could do U.S. real estate and it'd have to be more involved in it, or I could do Japanese real estate just as an excuse to do more Japan-related stuff. Right. So. Yeah. Have you been here? Do you visit here? Uh, I did uh, quite a while ago. I had some family on the base in Okinawa. Okay. So. So you're, you're probably aware of general fundamentals in the market, for example, that capital growth is not as much of a given here as it is in other countries around the world? Yes. Uh, the U.S. would be a smarter investment normally. For, for capital growth potential, I agree. For capital growth, yeah. 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 Um, but the tenants are a whole different kettle of fish in the U.S., aren't they? They, they are. Yeah. Um, so Japanese tenants tend to be – I mean, there's different kinds of hassles here, right? So, again, you don't get uh, delinquents and you don't need any – there's no need for forced evictions or, or going to court in too many – very rare that we ever have to go to court. And if we do, it's usually because – a tenant disappeared and we have to unilaterally cancel the lease kind of thing. Hmm. Um, but you have different types of hassle. So on many occasions, your tenants are going to be elderly and they could potentially pass away in the property. 
Um, there's an insurance policy that covers you for a lot of that, which we would highly recommend. Uh, if, if we're acting on your behalf, we'd um, almost force you to get it. And um, I would go along with that. Yeah. Um, occasionally you get the shut-in types, especially if it's elderly gentlemen. They might have never opened the window since they moved in and constantly smoke in the apartment. So there's no um, intentional damage or accidental damage, but there, there can be some neglect, especially, again, with the elderly males. Mm-hmm. Um, that's basically, um, sometimes we get somebody, again, if we're dealing with uh, the lower the asset class, the more of a lower income type tenant we're going to get. Yeah. And then in those cases, sometimes they just kind of disappear mid-lease um, for various reasons. They're kind of like, you know, destitute elderly people who might be like uh, on welfare support for various reasons. And then they just kind of disappear for whatever personal circumstances. And, oh. and then we do have to apply to court to unilaterally cancel the lease. But that's usually the extent of the trouble that we have here. And I'd say we usually run at about maybe 5% of tenants which have this kind of issue. It's, it's quite rare, but it does happen. Yeah. One of my tenants punched a hole in a wall. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's, that's, that's interesting. <laughs> Um, Okay, so what else can I fill you in on, like um, insurance, securities, tenancy laws? You said you've been listening to the podcast, so is there anything you picked up there that you want to expand on? or Uh, Not that comes to mind. Okay, so next steps from our perspective, if you're okay with that, would be to send you engagement forms. All right. Um, So we need two forms signed and witnessed for us to be able to represent you in Japan. And then we can put in a couple of hours of free research if you want, just to give you an idea of what's available on the market at your budget. Um, And beyond that, once you're ready to start submitting offers, conduct due diligence, you want us to start contacting sellers and realtors and so forth, at that point, we'll need to be, uh, we'll need our fee estimate paid in advance for your first purchase. Okay. From second purchase onwards, we can just bill you on settlement. But for the first one, we do need that paid in advance. So we're going to base it on your estimated budget. And then post-settlement, will credit or debit the difference depending on the actual purchase price. All right. Okay. And our fees for this budget are 4% plus tax, so 4.4. Okay. All right. You're very um, receptive. I'm, I feel like I'm on, in, on monologue mode, but is there anything that you want to ask? Um. Not particularly. Okay. I mean, we'll we'll get into a lot of toing and froing once we actually look at potential properties. So we'll get into what we think is the advantages or disadvantages of each of them. And then um, we'll probably dig deeper into stuff. But um, otherwise, I think that's all you need to know to get started, unless there's something I've missed. But you can tell me via email. I was tempted to ask about uh, property homes. Well, not property, uh, vacation homes, but uh, one property at a time. Oh, no, go. We'll While we're online, we can have a chat. It's okay. Oh. Um, well, I don't really know the different prefectures. Uh, like, my goal with one would be to be in an area that was located close enough to a train station so I could access stuff. Um, and maybe around some cultural sites and with good internet access. Yep. Those those are, well, three bedrooms. That, that's okay. my requirements. Yep. 
Um, Most depending cities? On the, depending on the age of the property. So there's a bit of a balancing act there between initial purchase price and annual maintenance. So if you're looking at a younger property, let's say 20 years or younger, when you're saying, I'm assuming you're talking about a house or would you consider yeah. a condo unit? Um, I would consider a condo unit. I'd prefer a house. Prefer a house. Just okay. depending so, on what, what works within the budget. Yeah. So a house would usually, these kinds of houses would use, landed houses in Japan are usually wooden structures. Mm. So once they get beyond the 25-year mark, um, maintenance can become slightly expensive. So if it's over 25, it's going to start costing, on average, something between two to 3,000 bucks a year in maintenance. Hmm. So you could have five, six years where you know, everything's sweet, and then termite protection comes in, or, or the, the roof needs to be redone, stuff like that. So then it averages out at about two to 3,000, between 25 to 35 years of age. And then beyond that, somewhere between three to four and so forth. So if you're looking to buy cheap, we can get something that's over 25 years old. And then the budget, as long as you're not you know, within a big city, the budget is probably going to be similar to your investment property budget, about 15 million yen. Um, if you want to get something younger, maybe 20, 25 million yen would be able to get something that's let's say up to 10, 15 years of age, which then gives you at least another 10 years without serious maintenance. Um, so, I mean, but both are perfectly doable. We've got customers purchasing older ones and newer ones. All right. Yeah. And then, I mean, the due diligence is, um, due diligence is going to be more limited than with investment properties because it's basically a lifestyle choice. You need to like yes. the place enough to enjoy it. Um, with the 15 million that we're going to be putting towards an investment property, that's going to be a condo unit. So the due diligence is a bit more um, thorough. We're going to have to look at the building uh, renovation history, how much they've got in the reserve funds, just to make sure that they're not going to suddenly um, double the building fees and kill your yield kind of thing. Yeah. With the house, there's not much of that to be done. So we could bring in a, um, a structural inspector, which is about $1,500 to get a good look at the place, um, make sure if there's anything that needs to be done or anything that he wants to alert us to. Um, but otherwise, due diligence is pretty limited to do you like the place or not kind of thing. Hmm. Yeah. So that that's all doable. And assuming that you're going to be, let's say, within... I'm guessing you, you're talking about about an hour by public transport to the nearest bigger city kind of thing, or, or do you want to be closer than that? Well, I want to be within walking distance of good public transport options, so I don't need to own a car. Yeah, but when you say good public transport, that, that could be a train station in the countryside too, right? Uh, yeah. yeah, provided I can get good internet in the countryside. Yes, well, we'll look at that. Most places, as long as they've got still got you know reasonable population numbers, usually would have reasonable internet. Um, but with the train, so once you do, let, let's say you're within 10, 15 minute walk to a train station, once you board the train, if it takes about 45 minutes or an hour to get to the big city, is that okay for you? Or do you need to be close? That's to fine. That? That's fine? Yep. So yeah, so that budget that I've said, maybe even a little bit lower would definitely do you. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so... Next step, shall I send you a copy of the engagement forms and shall I schedule in to do a couple of hours of free research just to give you an idea of what's out there? 
Sure. All right. I shall do that and we'll be in touch again soon. All right. Thank you, Ziv. Pleasure. Thanks for your time. All right. So as advertised, short but deep conversation there about all things related to planning your investment strategy if you're getting into the property investment market here in Japan. Hope you found some value in it. Now, before we go, we're also, as always, going to tell you and also link to our other sponsor's website. That's Hiroshi Shimizu, immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener. If you're thinking about moving here on a more permanent basis or you're already in Japan on some sort of a temporary visa and you want to switch to a longer term or permanent one, or if you're considering setting up a local company or a branch office of a foreign company and you've got any sort of business or visa-related inquiries, or even if you just want to find out what your options are on any of these topics, feel free to contact Hiroshi Shimizu. You can find him at japanimmigrationexperts.com and he can help you set up a company, apply for any kind of visa, or just provide you with the best advice and extremely affordable consultation related to these topics. And he's already done that for many of our listeners. So feel free to reach out to him. Again, that's japanimmigrationexperts.com and you'll be well on your way. And that's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Real Estate Podcast. Do share it with your networks and please let us know what you think. So leave us a short rating or review on the iTunes store, on Spotify, or just drop us a line in the comment section of wherever you might have found this episode. We love hearing from you. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, have a great day or night ahead. Yoroshiku. Bye.